listening to www.infinitesmile.org. Enjoy these Zen-inspired talks given by Michael McAllister. Thank you for listening. The Infinite Smile Sangha is made possible by the generosity of friends, members, and people who have been touched by this teaching. Please visit our donations page at infinitesmile.org to help us continue our efforts in spreading the Dharma. There are three big areas, or what we call in, in Buddhism, the three jewels that we use uh, on our way to awakening that are particularly valuable, at least in the Buddhist tradition. You don't need to be a Buddhist uh, to see the value in, in these three jewels. They're very, very simple. Uh, get a guide or teacher. Get a teaching. And then lastly, get a group. And uh, the reason why these things tend to work together so nicely is that we use this personal space that we call a self or an I or a me or whatever you want to call it. And we use this, this self, we explore this self and in the exploration of this selfhood, we start to understand the outer fringes, the frothy edge of where that self is. It's like in the in the center, it's very it's core. It's it's very uh, uh, it's thick. It's 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 clear. It's heavy, and then we start exploring the self, and exploring all the relationships that make up the self. And we kind of get to the outer fringes. And in getting to the outer fringes, we have in essence used the self to get to what is beyond the self. Does this make sense? In other words, like we use the alphabet to forget the alphabet. None of us, as we're reading a text or anything, is actually sounding out words any longer. We've intuited what that alphabet means and where it can point us. Similarly, we use the self to actually get into this other space. And it's always helpful to have a guide, as I mentioned last week, to help us along that path. You could climb, for instance, you could climb Everest <coughs> without a... Uh, Without a guide, um, you'd just probably die. You know, you could do it, um, but it's just—it's always helpful to <laughs> have somebody that's there. I, I wouldn't know. I have not tried it, but but uh, the closest closest thing I ever had to any type of mountaineering disaster was when I was 12 years old with this group of. Uh, uh, it was a Boy Scout trip, and it was it was supposed to be the the snow survival trip, except that we arrived, uh, we were hiking up just past Emerald Bay, and uh, I guess we, the, on the day before we arrived, it was, it was in the late fall, and bizarrely, it was like 74, 75 degrees at 6.30 at night. We're like, cool, snow survival, yeah. <laughs> you know, so all of us are out there with very light clothing. The weather forecast was stupendous. You know, we, we, were, we were looking to uh, just enjoy the scenery. 
and uh, each other's company. And all these dads were there, and all, the, all these guys were there, and they were a good group. Uh, right around um, midnight, we could hear this low howl start to develop. And this wind would just come in and start just plastering our tents to the point where we could, we could hear the actual, the, the ropes that were anchoring the tents you know, to the ground started to vibrate. It was, the wind was blowing so hard. And then uh, next thing we knew, snow was hitting. And it wasn't just like, oh, isn't it pretty? It was like, oh my God, this is like, this is like major snow. Um, by the time we didn't sleep that much, and there, there were around 25 or 30 of us on this trip, and it was, it was loud. I mean, you couldn't sleep. It would be like sleeping next to a freeway or something. It was that loud. Um, and uh, by morning, uh, I've shared this story with some of you before. I, I get out of my tent after pushing against snow that had piled up. Three and a half, four feet of snow had, had covered everything. And um, I get out, and I kind of think, man, this is, this is pretty amazing, um, especially since I don't have a particularly warm coat. Um, I don't have, my, my gloves are real, you know, kind of flimsy. Uh, this ought to be interesting. And I'm looking out at some of the dads that had come on this trip who were experienced uh, hikers and so forth, and I saw fear in their eyes. They had lost the trail. They had no way, you know, we, and... And when you see that, you're, you can intuit as a 12-year-old, you know, what's, what's going on with the daddies, you know, when they're, when they're looking around going, okay, okay, uh, dads, can we meet? You know, and you're like, oh, great. You know, this will be good. We all made it out alive. Um, one guy actually had some frostbite, uh, uh, but it, he healed up. He still has numb toes. Uh, but, uh, uh, you know, it was, uh, it was an amazing experience. And it was particularly amazing when I look back on it now in spiritual terms because quite simply what we saw there was the, the Buddha or the guide showed up in the form of two or three dads that you would never expect to show up as anything other than um, where's the vodka? You know, you, that was really the expectation. You kind of, these, these guys were not... Um, uh, particularly rugged. They were not particularly, in my view, uh, deep, but they showed up. And they showed up as problem solvers, knowing that there was a situation, not that there was something that needed to be uh, avoided or feared. I thought that was pretty remarkable. And they uncovered the path through trial and error and just intelligent reasoning. Um, that's the guide. The teacher, excuse me, the teaching is what acts as something to get us up the mountain and back down. For us to stay on the mountain and just kind of, you know, glom on to teaching. You know, for us to fill our entire iPod with, you know, podcasts and read every book and so forth. This is all well and good, but it's really kind of a superficial exercise when it comes down to the real work which is not only figuring out how to let go of everything so that we can summit, but also how to continue letting go of everything as we come right back into the world. This is what the teaching does for us.
and the Sangha is what allows for all of this to be supported. The Sangha is what allows us to share. The Sangha, or group, includes all beings, everything. There is nothing that's excluded from Sangha. No one is excluded from Sangha. Just like no thing, ultimately, is excluded from teaching. And there is no such thing as a non-teacher. All of this stuff starts making sense. All of it starts to coalesce and then express itself through us rather spontaneously. It's not something we work at. It's not something we master. It's something that masters itself through us. We become quite simply a vehicle where it's not us climbing the mountain and climbing back down. We are the climber. We are the path. And we are the climbed. That the mountain is us. Realizing itself through our climb. Through our ascent, through our summit, and through our descent. So tonight as we sit, can you rest as the mountain? Can you just let go of any type of craving to achieve? Any type of wanting, any type of desire, any type of quiet rejection or overt aversion. Can you just be right here, sitting still, being quiet, not grabbing anything? Well, just try that as long as you can, as hard as it may seem. Or if you have a particularly good night and it's just absolute, it's just a cakewalk. You're just, boom, you know, good for you. Now let go of that. Okay? Just be a sitting. Don't have a sitting. Be a sitting. Be a being. <laughs> a little further along these lines of uh, teacher, teaching, group. I wanted to talk about the teaching tonight and what it makes sense to look for. And I spoke last week uh, very clearly. There couldn't be much more self-serving than having me tell you what uh, you want to look for in a spiritual teacher if I was trying to recommend that I should do it, and I'm not. I'm recommending that you should, you should have one that you can affiliate with in a way that can keep the heat on. That's the teacher's job. The teacher's job is to relentlessly keep turning up the heat uh, with care, uh, by being firm. Um, I'm always a little biased towards uh, you know, loving, but squishy, touchy-feely actually can distract us from the real work, which is to uh, experience what is beyond the frothy edge of that personal sense, the sense of self. So to get beyond it, we use this personal sense of self to get beyond the personal sense of self into the what we very easily call the impersonal. So from personal 
to the impersonal. That's what the teaching is designed to do. It's to act as a bridge. So we might look, if we're going to stretch the uh, mountain metaphor around, the guide might be the teacher, okay? The teaching itself might be the path. And then the group is the party that you're with. And what is it taking you toward? It's taking you toward the experience of ascent, summit, and descent. The mountain itself, from the perspective of the path, is always a, 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 a beyond our experience in a really weird way. Let me, let me be clear about this. When, have you ever noticed when you're, when you're on a hike that the whole of the mountain cannot be seen from really any point along the path. You might get, you know, these glimpses or views or whatever, but the mountain itself or enlightenment itself is not really visible from the path. In fact, the path itself is delusion. What's beyond the path, what's beyond the teacher, what's beyond the teaching, what's beyond the sangha, this is actually what's allowed through when teacher, teaching, and group do their job. To back up a little bit, sometimes we say that we don't do meditation. Meditation does us. When we sit still and we have a consistent sitting practice and we've got these things you know, aligned where we've got the guide, we've got the teaching, and then we've got the support all of this stuff starts to coalesce into this really beautiful way where we can go beyond the self. And that's what the Dharma or the teaching should do. So whether you like uh, hardcore Zen, which is really appealing to me personally, that's what I like. That was where I came from. Or you like the Vajrayana version where it's, uh, uh, you know, uh, if you will, Buddhist, excuse me, um, uh, Tibetan Buddhism or you like Vipassana, which is kind of the Thai style of um, Buddhism. Whatever flavor you like of Buddhism, great. But don't stop there. You might find that contemplative Christianity works best for you. You might find that Kabbalah, you know, Jewish mysticism works best for you. Or that Sufism, the mystical aspects of Islam work best for you. Whatever it is, whatever the teaching is that can push you beyond the personal, that's going to actually move the process along beautifully. You want to make sure that whatever dharma you're into, whatever flavor you're into, okay, that it's something that is really clear and grounded in its ability to express not thoughts, but what's beyond the thoughts. In, in Zen, we say, not mind, but no mind. In other words, our minds fall into this really interesting spaciousness of we will go towards the past, we'll go towards the future, but where the mind cannot exist outside of past and future is in the present moment. If we are deeply in the present moment, there are no thoughts. There is simply what is observing thoughts. 
And in that spaciousness of the observing of thought or the observing of feeling or the observing of emotion, the observing of pleasure, of pain, whatever it is, that observation is actually in this space we call no mind. Make sure your teaching can push you or at least point you in that direction. Let it point you in the arena of stillness as opposed to action. It doesn't mean you can't be active. Some of the most realized people I've ever met are incredibly active, but every bit of their activity is sourced from this place of no mind. The teaching that they had, and it wasn't all Buddhism, by the way, put them into this direction of no mind. Put them in a space where they were no longer caught. And if you're not caught, I mean, think of a fish, a fish that is no longer caught suddenly recognizes liberation. And that's exactly, exactly what a good teaching should do. It should point us in the direction of liberation as opposed to you know, kind of pulling us off to the side. One of the things to be very, very uh, aware of is anything that promises, that promises future salvation, if you do the following, then future, because that takes us out of the present moment. And if it takes us out of the present moment, instead of taking us into the beautiful, open, spacious, no mind, or maybe I should say, the realm of no mind, we are put deeply into the mind. And thus, any realization that we have from this kind of future orientation towards salvation is kept small. It's kept personal. And this keeps us contracted as opposed to pushing us out past the frothy edge of the self. Any teaching... I know I'm going to sound like a heretic right here, but any teaching that puts us into a space where we are bound by our past. Any teaching of karma that basically says, well, you cannot escape your karmic uh, 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 past. You're going to have to wait for another lifetime. Suddenly, we've got both things in play. We've got not only all that has occurred in my past, which generates thinking and thought, okay, is keeping me from any type of realization in this life. I'm going to have to wait till my next life. You're pulled in this direction and this direction, and you are separated from this spacious opening to no mind. So any teaching that does that, any teaching that also puts us into the space, and this can work really well with karma also, any teaching that puts us in the space of anger at either someone else, which takes the form of judgment, typically, or takes that anger and directs it inward, which usually shows up as guilt. Anything that does either of those two things will diminish awakening's chance at realizing itself through us. In other words, a teaching that basically lets us know, I've got it, they don't. Or, we get it, they don't. Or, 
we're okay, they're not. We're saved, they're screwed. <laughs> anything, <laughs> anything like that, you might, you might want to watch out for that one. <laughs> that whole they're screwed teaching. It's pretty common in religion. <laughs> Um, I spend so much of my days uh, just in my in my head, you know, when I'm when I'm either writing or you know teaching or whatever. And and, and so one of the things I love to do, much to my wife's chagrin, is uh, watch an incredibly filthy, foul-mouthed, insightful show of social commentary called South Park. Yeah. <laughs> uh, it's a, it's my chance to suddenly laugh at just horrifically drawn characters on, on, on TV. The worst animation ever. And it's the content that absolutely floors me. Um, and one of the things that these guys were poking uh, fun at, uh, 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 Matt Stone and Trey Parker, the, the guys who've, who've been at this for all these years, um, is they were looking at uh, Muhammad and they, you, you, obviously, out of, out of respect for Islam, you know, uh, it's probably not a good idea to create any type of likeness to of of Muhammad. Um, this is considered really, really bad form, and so forth. Um, but you know, leave it to uh, Parker and Stone to decide to push that envelope as far as they could. Uh, they've got um, they've got security now. Uh, around their homes because of the death threats, uh, not even thinly veiled death threats. Um, what kind of wisdom tradition paints itself into that type of corner? I'm saying this judging it, and I'm not saying that that's necessarily good. I'm not looking at all of Islam as being evil at all. I think it's actually a beautiful, a beautiful wisdom tradition. But when wisdom traditions say, this is okay, that's not. When attachment starts to inform the expression of a wisdom tradition, it no longer becomes wise. It certainly no longer expresses compassion. So then allowing that type of attachment not to fuel our own is good dharma, whatever its flavor. Can you not get caught by someone else's hooks? Can a tradition not get caught by others' hooks? The natural tendency for any of us is to want to, believe it or not, um, allow this evolutionary impulse through. We are sitting in the midst of expanse. We are a rock that's blessed with an atmosphere and water hurtling through space. We can assume that that way is north, but from what perspective? Well, from where we sit. Where is north a few galaxies that way? suddenly our perspective shifts. And that's exactly what the Dharma should allow for. It helps us actually 
feel somewhat comfortable in this space of shifting perspectives. Allowing for this without getting caught by it. Allowing for something, for instance, like I just described the South Park situation. Allowing for that. Being able to stand in the face of it without getting caught by it. That allows us to constructively engage. Just as we might have the same experience over some type of political situation or some type of interpretation of the day's news. This allows us to actually be in the world without getting hammered by the world. We, in fact, can have the mind and the ego as survival mechanisms, as survival tools without getting tooled by either. And this is what Dharma will do. A good teaching will allow us to actually walk quite fully into that space. The teaching also will point us continually in two different directions. It will encompass two very distinct spaces. A good Dharma, so to speak, will point us always in the direction of mind and always in the direction of body. As we stop getting caught by the mind, as we are able to kind of recognize that, that space between our thoughts, and increasingly in our meditation, it's longer or there's a greater space between each thought, greater space, so forth. And then maybe we'll sit. We're, on Monday we have a great meditation and then suddenly Wednesday we cannot find any space at all, but then it comes back. We, we start getting comfortable with the fact that it's going to be what it's going to be and that we're just going to participate fully. That allows for the mind not to get caught. That allows for uh, uh, this no mind experience to be there. The same thing applies with our bodies. A good teaching will actually point to our bodies as a place where we recognize feelings. I'll never forget this one, one uh, student that uh, she and I were sitting in, in Dokusan together. This is years and years ago. And she said, uh, uh, she, was, she was talking about you know, her interpretations of the Dharma and so forth. And I, it was you know, a smart lady, very, very smart lady. Clearly, her brain had gotten her so far through life. And it was quite beautiful. And the opportunity, after she quieted down for a moment, um, uh, it presented itself. And I asked the question, how are you feeling? And she, she just stopped. Tears started coming down. I have no idea. It was as if her practice was here in her mind as opposed to here and everywhere else. She limited the expression of the infinite because it was too scary. It was too much. It was too much to actually feel. For us to allow for that feeling to occur, for us to allow this body to actually participate fully in our experience without trying to deny it, adjust it, anything, we just allow it to be. It allows us to see suddenly that all the feelings we have are also connected with our thoughts. I've talked before about how an emotion is basically a thought that has enough weight to actually sink into the body. Our emotions, on the other hand, become much lighter 
when the thoughts are much lighter, when the thoughts are seen as clouds in a big sky as opposed to a dark, stormy sky all the time, guess what? The emotions actually no longer catch us as often. When in our bodies we start practicing this idea of the middle way, when we don't go to extremes, at least we don't nourish extremes physically. We don't approach our bodies as things necessarily to be sculpted or, show, or shown off or things to be denied. That there's something right in the middle. A healthy body is something that encompasses balance and expresses balance. And as the body goes, so too does the mind, typically. Excesses become, uh, th or at least appetites for excesses, begin to diminish the more closely we study this frothy edge of self. And once again, a good teaching is going to push us in that space. A good teaching is going to help us recognize that there is something to this experience called being a human being. That there's an invitation towards this indescribable truth that goes beyond name and goes beyond form. It goes beyond my version of truth or your version of truth or their version of truth. It becomes something just infinitely expressive because this truth is the infinite itself. We start recognizing that there is so much more than feeling good that we may have spent a life being around people that make us feel good, situations that make us feel good, environments that make us feel good, and anything that doesn't make us feel good is either rejected through judgment or physically rejected by in some capacity running away. And that is a life a lot of people, you know, do this, but it's a life that's about as stable as a house of cards because we're predicating our existence and our being on being happy, on being made to feel good. And feeling good will drift. We won't feel good all the time. I'm guessing most of us in this room have noticed that. You just don't feel good all the time. Damn, isn't that what liberation is? Isn't that, I'm here, I'm here sitting in meditation so I can feel good all the time. Sorry, that's not what good dharma does. That's what heroin does, okay? <laughs> and I, I'm out, so if anybody needs some. <laughs> yeah, I mean, I kid, ar I kid around about this quite a bit, but it's, it's not, this, this isn't about bliss. This isn't about feeling good. This is about feeling. This is about feeling fully. This is about fearlessly allowing whatever pain or whatever good feeling shows up, and we meet it there with an equal amount of sunshine. And I use the term sunshine not to be like, you know, ha, ha I'm happy sunshine as much as it is sunshine as in light. 
we meet everything with an equal amount of light. And in doing so, whether or not things make us feel good or not doesn't become so important. That's a foundation for a life that actually awakens itself. When we're no longer trapped by or caught by wanting to feel good or avoiding feeling bad, this body that we're in is no longer caught, just like this mind is no longer caught by thinking, by judgment, by evaluation. And this allows us to actually move through the world with a deeper grace. It allows us to express ourselves with greater skill. It allows us simultaneously to absorb blows with a certain degree of deafness and throw them with love. It allows us to stand firm in the recognition, through the recognition of infinity. No matter what's coming our way, we're here. And that creates an opportunity for dance so that our life actually does become a dance as opposed to a war or as opposed to avoidance. We engage fully from a place in mind and in body that is supported by a dharma that points us to precisely what's past mind and body. That we go past the frothy edge of the personal and we find ourselves in the impersonal, as the impersonal. And once that recognition starts to ground itself in this body and in this mind, we come back, except we come back changed. We come back changed just like anyone who has given birth is changed. Anyone who has taken a look up from the path and seen the view from their hike or their climb is changed. And we bring that realization, we nourish it, nurture it, and bring it home. At least that's what a good teaching does. It allows us to come home as our deepest, biggest self. apologize if you we're expecting a quick 10 minute talk <laughs> to what extent is the book awaken this life a teacher and a guide or the teacher the guide and teaching yeah i think i think the book awake in this life um quite simply, is like any other book that allows you to see teaching, teacher, and group. Okay? In other words, it is a guide, but so is anything 
In other words, it is a teaching, but so is everything. So we could make distinctions, you know, that the book that kind of came out of me was a, a teaching. Well, well, sure, but there's nothing new about it. And that's not false modesty. It's just that it came through me as it's come through everybody else who's ever written about this stuff. And when it comes through you, you'll want to write about this. It's not a choice. It, I, I equated it like if suddenly somebody gave you a check, just cut you, cashier's check for 35 billion bucks, what would you do? I'm asking, what would you do? I gave you a check for 35 billion, what would you do? Damn right. You'd do something good with it, wouldn't you? You'd give it away, right? Mm -hmm. That's what any book about spirituality, worth its salt, in my view, is going to be doing. It's basically giving it away for sixteen ninety nine. <laughs> <laughs> I asked the question because in my second reading, I'm not reading what I normally would read in a book. Uh, 10, 20, 30, 40, 50 pages at a crack. Yeah. I'm reading one. Oh, just a little? Or one and a half pages uh -huh. a day. How, how, how's that different for you than like when you read it uh, the, the first time? Sinks in. Oh, okay. That's very flattering, actually. I mean, especially coming from you. But <laughs> I, I'm not kidding. That's very flattering. But I think then that what, what you're probably picking up on is that um, getting to that spacious, frothy edge of self is, it, it takes, it's thick to get there. <laughs> and any description of how one can get there also is fairly thick too because you have to take the utterly simple teaching, which is let go and put it into kind of a, a methodology or something. And I'm not, I'm totally inarticulate in this moment probably, but, and so busting through that stuff, you saw a Shawshank Redemption? Did you ever see that? Remember he, 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 <laughs> he escaped from prison with a little hammer and just picked piece by piece by piece by piece, by piece right? And then and he finally escaped and made it down to Zihuatanejo in Mexico, <laughs> right? And he did it by just... <laughs> One little thing at a time, and that is exactly how the, uh, the Dharma tends to work. The cool thing is, though, there's going to be some point where crack, you bust through, and it's not just chipping concrete away. Now you actually see that there's something on the other side. And to the extent that Awaken This Life can do that, or any other, any other book, you got your hands on some Dharma right there. And it doesn't have to be my book necessarily or anybody else's, but anything that allows for that crack to occur that can help, that can help it sink in, that's, that, that's very, very valuable. Um, just be, it's, I mean, it's, it's cool that you're reading it because you know, you know me at my, my best and my worst, right? And so, you know, it's really cool for you to be able to read sentences and go, ha ha, bullshit, you know, <laughs> something like that, right? Um, <laughs> and uh, 
at least that's I'm, I'm assuming that's what you're doing as you read it. But but the but the idea occasionally good good yeah. Um, but the the point here is that that anything anything that allows for you to open past anything that allows for you to experience this witnessing awareness anything that allows for that to, anything that helps you deepen your stillness without flinching that helps you deepen your silence you it have can be a guide it can be a whatever yeah yeah thank you, thank you. <laughs> whoa <laughs> a, lot of, a lot of questions. Why don't, why don't I do this? Um, I've got five minutes left. Let's go one. Yeah? You had one? Kel, mm -hmm. you had one too? I'll wait next No, you won't. And then, <laughs> and then finally, and then, is that cool, Mom? Yeah. All right. I love saying that. Mom? <laughs> you okay with that? <laughs> No, I'm not. <laughs> okay, okay. Yes. I'll go quickly. Michael, uh, all of us have uh, things in our human experience that are very difficult. Uh, what I was listening tonight is in order not to run away from it, to stand firm, because that seems to be necessary, uh, is it helpful to allow one to stand more firmly by simply impersonalizing and looking at it for what it is, recognizing it for what it is, and calling it whatever it may be, and not to allow it to overwhelm you by looking at the bigger picture, the much bigger picture, and not personalizing. I think, yeah, you, you could say that. I think there's a shortcut to all that, which is let it, over, let it overwhelm you. Okay, for how long? As long as it takes to exhaust itself. Uh -huh. Let me let me let me be really clear. Well, I'll see. Yeah, now now you're exhausted. You're exhausted now. Okay. All right. So in other words, in other words, if what if what uh, totally beats us up. Okay. If we just let it beat us up a little bit and then, up, oh, time to move on, what we've done is we've actually started to compartmentalize it and build up a def like a, a defensive wall. Instead, what we do is we meet it full force, but in the meeting, we don't move. Okay? We have a choice. Oh, yes, you do. It's called avoidance. It's called denial. It's called glass number three of really good wine. It's called, I mean, there are all sorts of things we can call it. No, I know. <laughs> but but the, the point is that when something in life, when that wave comes, okay, when that wave comes, I've described it metaphorically like this before, you have, you have a couple of options. You can either let the wave hammer you, take you under, drag you, but pound you on the uh, on the uh, floor, whether it be it coral or sand, you're just getting mushed. Or you can allow yourself to meet that wave entirely and go up. My dad used to show, show me how to do this when uh, we were at the beach, you know? It's just be right there with that wave. You become that wave, Michael, and you become that pain. You become that wave of anguish. You are totally there for it without indulging it or running from it. And then you become a surfer. 
In other words, the waves are just that. They are waves. They are not anything to be feared. They are not anything to be avoided. They are not anything to be indulged. They are just the universe expressing itself, saying, how are you? How's this? <laughs> right? Pay attention. And if you, that means that the wave will show up whenever it shows up. And if your practice is to be attentive to that arising whenever it shows up, what happens is it no longer catches you over time. You welcome it. It's an old teacher, an old teaching, an old Sangha member. Right? And the minute we actually do that, we, we, we give ourselves over totally to this process of non-attachment to this stuff, what happens is it begins to express itself through us in really, really powerful ways. We don't get thrown off kilter. We don't get knocked around by our pain, our anguish, nearly as much. In fact, our pain and anguish begin to be our greatest teachers. Yeah. And, and I can sense you're like, mm, but when? Or, <laughs> well, that is, that's very true. And the, those things are our biggest teachers. And it's so much easier to look at those teachings from afar. And it's great, great clarity. It's the going through it that is where the mindfulness needs to be. Exact, that's exactly right. That is exactly right. Because being far away from it can be the same thing as not being intimate with it. You haven't been through it. You have not been through it if it's still got gotcha. you. Right, right. Okay? Uh-huh. In other words, there, it, it's still, it's still and it doesn't mean you will never feel pain again, but your relationship to that pain as it keeps arising shifts. When you were really intimate with it, we're right next to it as opposed to, oh, yeah, I can see that. I can see that's impersonal. That's, no, you know, that's not about me. Well, it, that's an intellectual exercise as opposed to a body and mind exercise of being right there with our disaster, whatever it might be, when, whenever it shows up. Whichever one it may be. Exactly. <laughs> Kel.
my recommendation is let it into your bones. If something resonates with your heart and mind, dance with that. Don't smother it and don't run away from it because it's too good to be true. You've just been asked to dance. Do not stay on the wall. Cut a rug. <laughs> yes. Mm-hmm. Yeah, well, you're alone because nobody, everybody else has had bliss in here except for you. <laughs> I guarantee my total waves are bigger. <laughs> really? Yeah. That's a great story. Yeah. yeah. Anyway, um, <laughs> so I'm, uh, you know, trying to get to the mind behind the, beyond the mind and mm -hmm. just kind of, I've been doing okay, but I'll tell you, um, there's a couple things that take me out. You know, I mean, everybody's a breaking point, and um, so my question is, it is amazing to me how unconsciously meaning adults can be. Mm -hmm. I have a 12-year-old who's been stirring all sorts of yeah. unbelievable problems in my life. And um, I've been dancing with this conflict, do I kind of say, oh, no, wait a minute, guys, let's get a grip on this. Mm -hmm. Or just let them have their insane perception of this. Mm -hmm. And it's mean-spirited, so they're going and talking to the other parents in the, in the basketball team. So it's like, you know, okay, I'm there. Yahoo, here we go. But you say, don't be a doormat. Um, and it's my fear that says, I want to go, oh, wait a minute, guys. Let's have a conversation here. So how do you, how do you balance dealing with people who are completely unconscious, <laughs> mm -hmm. you know, and reactive with your supposed ability to ride the wave. <laughs> well, it does, it does, but I would be really clear that your first step is to look at your own clinging. Because the conversation that you want to have basically sounds like it's coming from a place of clinging. Understandable though it may be, I don't know the story, but it, it sounds like it may be justified on all sorts of different levels that you've, you know, this, so at least clinging to what? your own story of what justice is and what fairness is and the way it should work. And it was more in conflict with, okay, if I can let it go, is that the right thing to do? If you're letting it go and that surrender is this, that's not letting it go. Letting it go is actually still being right there for the wave to hit you, being very intimate with whatever is arising in that moment, right? So your ability to call someone who says, offers, I'm making this up, but they make a disparaging remark, let's say, and you're right there for you to say nothing and then cloak yourself with, oh, I'm a good Buddhist, that doesn't bug me. That's actually the ego creating a story about what a good Buddhist is. Okay, so in other words, calling it in the moment as it arises from a non-attached space allows for great communication or what we call right speech to occur. And that's a gift to everybody, including yourself, because you at least feel like you have articulated yourself, whether they've been able to take it in or not, doesn't matter. 
you have actually been able to stand in the middle of that fire and deliver love. Not only for your daughter, but for them. Okay? Instead of, because the way you described it was kind of, it was interesting. It was like, they don't get it. They are unconscious. They are, well, you've just created the situation where ego gets to manage this entire experience and attachment abounds. And what comes from attachment is pain. So watching, that's why I said watch your own clinging first. What are you clinging to? Study that. Dance with that. Then, when you start developing a degree of flow and clarity around th those issues, okay, being able to articulate yourself completely and and you can never control that. Well, I know that intellectually. No, you, I, I dare you physically to try to keep them from doing that. I, I mean, I bet you could kick their asses. But my point is, that's what it that's what it turns into, right? And so what you've done is you've created a situation of war. All right, and it's a war that manifests within you. You go to war with them because they're being cruel or whatever, and that's under. I, I can. What's what we can do intellectually is understand that. What's interesting, what's deep, what's compassionate and wise, on the other hand, is actually getting really clear about your own resistance, about your own ego getting tweaked by whatever this situation is, and then being able to, in as, in as generous a way as possible, let Mama Bear express herself. But if Mama Bear is going to express herself violently, unskillfully, with, you know, uh, and, and violently, I don't mean just like physically, I mean verbally. If we're in that space, what we've done is we've actually generated more pain, more suffering than we've worked to heal. So it's, it's, a question of, it's, it's a question of internally, what are you clinging to? It sounds, like, it sounds like the situation is catching you in all these really, really fascinating ways. If you can allow this situation to act as an invitation into the house of God, then what you've done is you've allowed the life that you're leading right now to awaken you. It ain't easy. Okay? That's why we call it practice, okay? But you become a spiritual athlete, much, much more graceful, much more skilled. The deeper we go with this, the more we practice it. <laughs> Please, no one cross Filey this evening. <laughs> Thank you so much for coming tonight.